to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. Our guest on this episode is career and workplace expert Dan Chabelle, who is partner and research director at Future Workplace and the founder of both Millennial Branding and WorkplaceTrends.com. Dan is also a best-selling author whose newest book is called Back to Human, How Great Leaders Create Connection in the Age of Isolation. Dan, it's so nice to talk to you today. Thank you so much for being on our show. Really excited to be here with you. Thank you so much for having me. Talk to us a little bit about your background and how you became an expert in millennials and personal branding. Oh, wow. So we want to go really far back. My first job was was when I was 13. My first internship was in high school, cold calling. During college, I had seven more internships, uh, eight leadership positions on campus, and good grades. And then I had my first business I started, which was a website consulting business and design business back sophomore year of college. And then I worked for EMC Corporation, which is now EMC Dow. I went from product marketing to online marketing. And then I created the first ever social media position back in November 2010. Sorry, 2007. Long time ago. So this was back in the early days when there really wasn't too many social media corporate positions. So I had to come up with a job description, if you can believe it. Now, most companies have people who work in social media, usually under the marketing or PR departments. And so I was just kind of inventing it back then and inventing the position. And it was based on what I was doing outside of work, which was focused on personal branding. So between October 6th and March 14th, I started a blog called Personal Branding Blog. I started a magazine called Personal Branding Magazine. Everything personal branding. It was a personal branding world back then for me. I was working very hard. I had the full-time job outside of work on nights and weekends. I was blogging 12 times a week. I was commenting on every blog that mentioned personal branding. I was working on a magazine, managing 100 contributors and two editors and sponsors and distributing the magazine and doing everything with that. And so, you know, all that hard work paid off, left EMC, started Millennial Branding, which originally was just me coaching people, whether they're executives or comedians or celebrities on how to build a strong personal branding using social media, which was, you know, there's so many personal branding consultants now. It's pretty amazing. But back then it was pretty new. And so I was working with that. And then I switched business models and I started helping companies better connect with millennials from mostly from a hiring and retention standpoint and now obviously leadership standpoint but back then it was you know how do we recruit them how do we engage with them and sell sell our products and services to them that's really what companies were hiring me for uh, and then the book journey happened um, you know I was very inspired by the fact that I was hired internally to be the first social media person at EMC uh, after Fast Company profiled me for the work I was doing outside of the office. And instead of the amount of hard work it took to work for EMC, to get a job at EMC, it took me eight months, meeting 15 people for three different positions to get my job out of school. And so, so the fact that I was building my online personal brand 
And EMC was now recruiting me internally to create a brand new position around social media for the company. That was a big aha moment for me. It's like, wow, this personal branding, like I've been talking about it, but it's really working. Like it's, it's had a huge impact on my life. And then that inspired the first book, Me 2.0, which was the first book on how to use social media to build your career. But really what's happened over time is each book has helped people get to the next phase of their career. So Me 2.0 also is like, you know, answers the question, how do I get my first job when I graduate college? And then Promote Yourself, my second book was, you know, you have a job, here's how to get ahead at that job. And then this book is a leadership book, right? And so it's got a little bit of a twist though. Because the big problem I found with people of my generation is that they're overusing and misusing technology. It's getting in the way of human interactions. People are tapping their devices over 2,600 times a day and looking at their phone every 15 minutes. So there's a massive addiction going on here. And my goal through the book is to help people think about when and where to best use the technology so it's bringing them closer to others. You know, let technology be a bridge to human connection, not a barrier. And I know you say that technology and more specifically email is the main cause of social isolation at work. Yeah. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I was looking at different technology tools and how they got in the way of interpersonal relationships in the workplace. And email was the biggest culprit. In fact, one face-to-face conversation is more successful than 34 emails back and forth. Wow. Instead of, instead of just constantly emailing with someone and you know, people being misunderstood and people accidentally replying all and who knows what happens with email and who's, who it's forwarded to and, and how people take your messages. And, and sometimes people just feel like they have to email because they've always emailed and it's really the office protocol. Yet it really eats up a lot of our time and people feel misunderstood. And the last thing we want is to feel misunderstood. We want to be able to communicate how we feel to other people and you, you certainly can't handle an office conflict through email. That's not the right approach, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's much better handled in person on a one-to-one meeting in a private setting, a private you know office or some sort of location. So, uh, but most people, you know, it was a study out. I remember <laughs> where you know people my age, some would rather be fired by text than an in-person uh, firing, right? And so I, I think we're starting to lose these important critical connections that we've always had, yet we need them. We desire them. Maslow's hierarchy of needs says after safety and security and food and shelter, we need love and friendship to be self-actualized. We cannot achieve our full potential at work if we don't have real relationships. And we're spending a ton of time at work. The average work week now is 47 hours a week for a full-time salaried employee in the United States. So this isn't, you know, obviously if you're in Europe, you know, you might have a 35-hour a 35-hour work week, but here, but here, we're working nonstop, right? And even if you leave the office, you're still on the hook. You still have to respond to emails out, outside of work. Even if you don't want to, you're just doing it because we have some sort of addiction. We feel bad and guilty by not responding to those emails. Not having your phone is the new vacation. Right, right. Well, I'm a millennial myself, and I feel like we get such a bad rap, even though we're the people who are really putting in these extra hours. Why is that? Why are we looked down upon by people in my mom's generation? 
this is a great question. And the, and the fact is, is that this has always been the case. And I set out to understand why a few years ago. So I did multiple research studies and found that every generation negatively stereotypes young people and positively stereotypes el- their elders. Hmm, interesting. Uh, regardless of age, it's always happened. The difference now is that technology, social media, has amplified these messages, these stereotypes. There's actually actual incentives in place in the media to write negative stories to anger millennials because there's so many millennials, 80 million in, in the U.S. alone. And so if you write a negative story on millennials, that will attract more millennials to share it out of anger and for older generations to also share it to perpetuate those stereotypes, which directs more traffic to those media entities so that they can make more advertising revenue. That's what's really happening, if you want to know. And so that's why you see a lot of articles bashing millennials, because there's a financial incentive in place. You interviewed 100 top young leaders for your book. How do they view technology in their roles as leaders in the workplace? They view it as a double-edged sword. So there's a lot of good that can come from technology, and it can be a hindrance at the same time. You know, it can. So I'll give you the best example. You can use technology such as a Outlook or Google Calendar to make sure everyone's getting to the right event or meeting at the right time and they're prepared with the right information when heading into the meeting and know who's going to be attending it. But if you're using that technology or using any technology during the meeting, you're not using it appropriately because you need to be present with your team members. How are you supposed to brainstorm and come up with new ideas if you're too busy looking at your phone and you're wondering who's liking your Instagram photo. It's not going to happen. And what, what I found, we did a study, it's in the book actually, uh, a few years ago when we found that we asked employees, how do you come up with your most creative ideas or what inspires you to come up with new creative ideas? And it was other people. It was other employees. So we get our best ideas when we talk with other people. It's not when we sit on our computer and you know, stare at a screen for two hours. Um, you know, next time you, you know, want to connect with someone, go for a walk and have a walking meeting. And I'm telling you, Steve Jobs did it. A lot of successful people in our, you know, in our world have done it. And so if you do it, you'll, you'll, you'll see the difference. You know, there's a reason why Amazon has an Amazon rainforest as part of their headquarters in Seattle now where you go and they have a thousand different types of plants and you're like in this rainforest and you're able to schedule meetings there. Is because it's healthy, for one, gets you away from the typical office situation where you're in a cube or you're in a physical office or wherever, and you're now in this very inspiring place. But the most important thing is you're on other people. And that, that's the key. That's something that will never change. And no video conferencing or any futuristic technology like virtual reality is ever going to change this. I Human think- connections matter. I think that there's a real feeling amongst millennials that if they do put down that phone, that they're going to lose a connection with their followers on Instagram and Facebook and therefore maybe lose a little bit of a personal edge that they had um, that maybe helped them in the workplace because they stayed on people's radar. What do you think about that? Well, it really depends what you're looking to do. If you are, if you're in a social media or marketing role, the importance of using social media is much greater than if you're in HR, let's say. 
I'm not saying these tools aren't valuable. I built a good portion of my career using those tools, but I realized that those connections were only grew in strength when I met people in person. So let technology be a path to more connection. You know, if you are, if you have a thousand, so there's actually a really good study on this. So the definition of friend is not a Facebook friend. The definition of a friend is someone who be, who will be there for you at a time of uh, a crisis. So it's like, who do you really, who can you really count on is, is really the question to ask. And there was a study that showed that for someone who has an average of 150 Facebook friends, only three of them were actual friends that they could count on. Wow. So technology has created the illusion that we have a vast network, but we really don't. So if you really look through all your LinkedIn contacts and Facebook friends and Instagram followers, how many people would go to your funeral? How many people would be there for you if you were in the hospital and would ask for you? How many people would call you on your birthday? These are like the bigger questions around friendship that that I talk about when I present about this topic or that are featured in the book. Because to be honest, what we found globally is we lack work friends. We're spending so much time at work, but globally, almost 10% of, of the global workforce has zero friends at work and half have five or fewer. Wow. Tell us and about... And as you, as you get older, once, you, once uh, you're, you get past 25 years old, you start losing friends quicker because people get more spread out. They start getting married and having children. And, and you know, especially as men, men have it even worse. They become lonelier and have fewer deeper relationships as they grow older. So this is a loneliness epidemic in America and actually in the UK and other parts of the world now too. In the UK, it's so crazy. I discussed in the book, 9 million people are lonely always or often. 200,000 people haven't spoken to a close friend or relative in the past month. And they have a minister of loneliness because there's an economic impact. It's costing the UK billions of dollars. Getting along those lines, tell us a little bit more about the link between social media use and depression. Yeah, there's been a lot of research studies on social media use and narcissism, but also depression because of the fear of missing out. You know, when you see that your friends all have children and you don't have a child and you're single, it messes with your head. If you see your friends in Greece and or at a at some party or you know celebrating with a, a bunch of friends and you don't have many friends, you know, it really messes with your mind. And there's, there's a ton of research around it and, you know, it can really be bad for your health. And so that FOMO that you get from seeing what other people are doing, comparing your life to theirs is not healthy. You've interviewed more than 2000 of the most successful people in the world, including Warren Buffett, Sir Richard Branson and Sheryl Sandberg. What universal lessons did these people provide? Wow. Great question. <laughs> uh, well, I'll tell you one thing I've been telling my friends recently. It's like, what is all, what are all successful people have in common? And it's, they want to be more successful and they <laughs> want to be known for that success. Oh, I see that. Uh, yeah. 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 And so what lessons do they provide? I think perseverance is really key. You know, no one actually had it easy. There's no overnight success. You know, it's all about a lifetime journey of learning and growing and figuring things out. I think what's really fascinating, to be honest, not just from my interviews with them, but my personal life is we're all still trying to figure it out. 
everyone, that's the biggest myth. Everyone looks at someone who's successful and is like, oh, wow, they have everything together. They're all set. They're going to be extremely, they're, they're, they don't have to worry about anything. They're, they're rich. They're famous. They, you know, they've got everything they need. But actually, everyone has problems. Everyone has internal struggles. And I think that's what binds us all together. That's what makes us human. Right. Like back to back to human. It's like we all have our own internal battles, external battles. And even if something's successful today, you know, Richard Branson has over 400 brands under him, under the Virgin Group. And so every time he starts another company, that's, a, you know, he doesn't know if it's going to work out. So there's some risk there. There's a reputation risk. There's financial capital risk. And so they're always pushing themselves forward. But because they're getting into new businesses, because they're challenging themselves more, they inherently are trying to figure things out. So they're hiring experts. They're, you know, anything they don't know, they they have coaches, they have advisors, they have experts, they have people around them that are helping them. I think that's really key, and it's something that I've seen across, you know, thousands of people. Is you know, they need to form a support network of people who can help them solve their problems when they need it. You know, like on demand problem solvers. I think that's really important. I think the perseverance is key. And they all say, follow your passion. But I think there's this con- it's, it's interesting. Like Mark Cuban said, follow your energy. But a lot of people say, follow your passion and you'll never work another day in your life. It's like the old saying. Um, I think it's about a combination of many things, right? I think you can get a competitive advantage in two ways. One, be the best at what you do for a specific audience. That's what I always talked about in the personal branding days. But I think what I've realized is the reason why I stood out is I'm good at several things. When combined, it gives me a competitive advantage. I can do research, branding, marketing, PR, um, and I'm passionate about you know workplace trends and the future of work and, and millennials and the workplace. And all of this combined has given me an advantage, not one specific thing. I'm not the best researcher in the world. I'm not the smartest. I might not even be the smartest person on millennials in the world, but all of these combined makes you know, my background more interesting. It makes me able to perform and do things that give me an advantage. And so when I talk to really successful people, it's not always one thing. It's many things combined at once. I think that's fascinating. And it's something I've thought about over the past few months. Dan, our show is called Nobody Told Me. And we always ask our guests, what's your nobody told me lesson? What is it that you've learned in in your career, in your life that nobody told you and you kind of wish maybe they had? Nobody told me that it would always be a struggle. I always envisioned that you would get to a point where you've made it, but there's really no such thing as making it. You just keep going. And I find that really fascinating because so many people are like, oh my God, once I get a book published, once I sell my company, I've made it. No, it's just part of your journey. It's part, it's one experience out of many you'll have in your life. You'll learn from it. You'll, you might benefit from it financially, but it's just part of the journey. There's, there's no end to the journey because the journey is life. And there's, there's always something new you're going to want to do and new goals you'll come up with. Yeah. Ambitious people that I interview, they just keep doing new things. You know, I mean, there's, there's no stop to it because they're ambitious for a reason. Right. You know, they've achieved a lot for a reason because they want they want to do a lot. And 
And someone like that, someone with that mentality and drive is not going to just randomly stop when they're 60 and, and call it quits. I'll tell you, Ken Blanchard, who wrote The One Minute Manager, he's almost 80 years old and he speaks for free at uh, a few conferences per year. So like to me, that's inspiring because only someone who really loved what they do would do that. He doesn't need to do that. He could just you know, sit on a beach for five hours a day and just call it and just play golf. Like he just doesn't need to do it, but he's doing it. And that to me is very inspiring. Someone who doesn't need to do it, but does it same with people who invest in your career. The people I like the most are the ones who don't need to support me. They choose to, to me, that is so powerful. That's why I dedicated the book to my literary agent is because he represents Tom Brady, Ray Dalio, and some of the biggest people in the world. And me, and he doesn't need to represent me. So I love, <laughs> so that belief, that vote of confidence is, is pretty powerful. Um, and it, it really changes your life. And all it takes is one person who really believes in you to make that much of a difference. And, and to me, that's exciting. I actually wrote it in my, my last book, uh, The Power of One is what I called it, and uh, Promote Yourself. And it just takes one person to really make that impact for you and change your life. Dan, how can people connect with you online and learn more about your work? Yep, you can check out my podcast, Five Questions with Dan Shawbell, where I interview world-class humans, asking them five questions in under 10 minutes. And then you can go to my website, danshawbell.com, D-A-N-S-C-H-A-W-B-E-L.com. And there you'll get the book information, you'll get research articles, you name it. It's a wealth of, of data and information. Well, Dan, we really want to thank you for being on the show. Dan is the author of, as we said, Back to Human, How Great Leaders Create Connection in the Age of Isolation. And again, his website is dan, dot com. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. And you're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thanks for joining us. 